Welcome everyone, this is Carlos from SeedCamp. Today we have a special guest, Nick Brisbane of Forward Partners, a fund that is very unique and we will hear about the things that they do that are very different in a second. But first, we always like to start off with the origin story. And Nick, maybe you can help us understand what you studied in college and what was the first job you did after your graduation? Sure, so great to be here. My first, well, what I studied was, was social science. So I was loved maths and loved science actually at school. Uh, but by the time I was, and I look back on this and it's almost kind of embarrassing in a way, but by the time I was 18, we kind of studied and I was looking around my house and I like, I know how everything in this house works. The maths we were doing was at a ridiculous level of abstraction. Uh, and I just wanted to reach for something more real. And so I sw switched and studied uh, social science. I'd always had an interest in philosophy and that slowly became social science. So I went to Cambridge and studied the uh, social and political science tripos there for, for three years, which has turned out to be a good grounding in investment, but uh, only after I'd been in the, uh, in the venture industry for about six or seven years when we started looking at, at social networks and became much more important suddenly to understand behavior change and how people's behavior patterns evolve. To begin with, uh, when, I, when I first started in venture, the uh, social science was it's not a big help and everybody wanted computer science uh, computer science grads, really. But my first job out of college was to work for a Gemini consulting, management consulting business. At that stage, I just wanted to learn more. I wanted to open more horizons. Uh, and uh, and you know, so Gemini was a, a top six global management strategy consulting firm at that point. Uh, and, I, and I went there. And I think that's a good thing, actually, for, for a lot of graduates to consider, not necessarily strategy consulting per se, but to work for a, a blue chip global organization that can give you a global perspective, give you a lot of deep training in, in sort of basic stuff like financial statements, strategy, but also in how to conduct yourself professionally, how to run meetings and, and all that sort of stuff. How, how long were you there for? Only two years. Yeah. Only two years. I, I wanted to visit on what you said earlier regarding social networks. There's a book called Tribes. I don't know if you've had a chance to read it. I think I, there's a few years old now, right? Yeah, yeah I think I had a look at it. Maybe, I mean, it's very curious that the whole thing about social science, and in particular where you said six, seven years later is when mm -hmm. you really started to, to leverage that. Is there any, anything that, that maybe now in retrospect that you look back on over the course of your career and think, wow, this is really interesting element of social, uh, social networking, social science that people misunderstood or still misunderstand uh, and maybe joining kind of what you studied with what you know now? So if I think back to the software companies we were all, we were all investing in, in in the very late 90s and, and the early noughties, uh, so I got my first job in venture in 99, uh, then success for those businesses was all about selling these large enterprise deals and they all struggled with adoption. Uh, and so, you know, Oracle in particular was, you know, they were the company that was having the most success at that point and amazing at sales, but then everybody in the company, you know, everyone of their customers hated using the software. What's happened uh, in the last sort of five, 10 years as uh, really with the SaaS revolution driven by freemium business models, the best companies now really keenly understand uh, what it is that drives adoption, which is ultimately behavior change that, that you're trying to reduce on behalf of the, the, the users of your software and the companies. Now, thinking back now, I wonder if, you know, if Oracle had had a few sociologists, uh, uh, social psychologists, behavior change experts, you know, working with them in the early days and not just thinking about how do I sell this big ticket stuff to the CIO, then, well, then they could have had more adoption, happier customers mm -hmm. and 
And the fact that, you know, that might have actually put them in the forefront of the SaaS revolution rather than actually playing catch up, which is what they have done. Mm. Actually, would it be interested to maybe revisit this when we talk a little bit about what you're doing today in Forward mm. Partners and helping build companies, how much of that you integrate into the early stages of the company's development? That would be an interesting thing to revisit. But if you go back to kind of where we left off, so you did two years in management consulting, and then what, what did you do after that? So then I decided that uh, I wanted to, so we're now in the, uh, we're now in 98, uh, and so the startup revolution is starting to uh, to take off. Uh, so I went to work for a small company, um, a company called Operis, uh, and a uh, lovely company. Again, uh, I learned a lot there. You know, and I'm still still friends with the founder there, David Colville. We had lunch earlier this year, some, uh, what is that, 18 years after I left. Uh, no, 18 years after I joined. But ultimately, that's a profession. It was a tech-enabled professional services business, and, and we were never really able to get the, uh, this, the tech-driven scale which drives massive upside in startups. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so, so I only stayed there two years. Um, you know, it became apparent to me that, you know, good company as it was, uh, it kind of didn't fit with what I wanted to do for the long term. So then, then I started thinking, okay, where do I go next? Uh, and at that point, I thought venture capital is, is the, the industry for me. I'd, you know, I'd really enjoyed working in a startup, mm-hmm. um, but I'd had the experience of, of making a choice and, and, and having that one, um, you know, then I needed to move career again. I mm-hmm. put all my eggs in one basket. And so I, I was attracted by the idea of, of working with multiple startups, mm-hmm. uh, and I really enjoyed the variety of all of that. I really enjoyed the variety um, when I'd been a management consultant. And also, the a lot of the skill set of a VC is is consulting. I mean, there there are other parts as well, and we can maybe come to that in a minute. But being able to understand strategy, being able to understand financial statements, being able to contribute effectively around the board table, understand what it is to, to effectively to coach. You know, when I was a management consultant, we were coaching our uh, our clients on, on how to build out their mm-hmm. strategies and and how to execute in their businesses and, and there's uh, I think reasonably strong parallels between that and uh, and the role you have as as a venture investor at startups. Yeah, no, that's a fair point, and and I think maybe what would be interesting is to explore those two years that you spent with with um, the startup and look at what it is that you look back on those days and say, with my hat on of doing ventures, I guess now sixteen years or so, what are the things that you would have done differently during those two years? I guess I would have I'd have had a much clearer idea that in order to drive scale and, and a massive growth, the tech side of the business needed to become much stronger. You know, uh, the it was effectively a professional services business enabled by smallish amounts of tech. You know, and so if I'd have been uh, much more clear from the outset that if we want to re- realize our ambitions here, that needs to change. And we did, you know, we as I think back, we we did we had lots of small tech initiatives, but maybe maybe the thing I'd say now is is you know lots of small initiatives is not the way to go. One one big one, uh, mm. or you know like a, you know get a big bet down and you know and you test it, and if that doesn't work, you move on to another big bet. But uh, you know by big, I mean something which really could mm. change the company in a significant way very quickly. How does how does that line up with some of the lean methodology and sort of MVP type culture? whereby you have a lot of very smart, maybe ex-bankers or ex-management consultants that are starting companies, and in some case probably approaching you at very early stages with ideas that don't have a full-fledged focused tech strategy. So so the businesses we back at, at Forward Partners, uh, what we look for are, are strong ideas in big markets coupled with a great founder. Mm. And so the, you know, so the 
just to make it real. So, so one of the most recent investments we made was in a company called Patch. It's it's bringing the garden centre of market online, and still, if you look into that industry, it has barely moved. And and so, so Freddie uh, Blackett, the founder there, his his idea is to be selling garden solutions rather than plants, and and you can provide bespoke solutions for for people. So, so you know, so that was a powerful idea, a lot better than the existing experiences out there. We could see that the market was big, and we knew from from experience working with. Um, well, the eleven, you know, eleven idea stage companies who've actually been their team from day one and, and, and mm-hmm. built their products. We, you know, we know from experience that getting the product right is challenging, but most of those challenges are really around understanding the customer, making sure you get the design right, the branding right, the UX right, uh, uh, and then and then the tech needs to work really well underneath. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so, I'm not, I'm not trivializing that, but it's not it's not rocket science. Uh, and so, you know, so we have a high degree of confidence that, that we're going to be able to solve the tech problems that, that they run into as they arise. So how do you decide when to, like when you're working with companies, how do you decide to say, guys, look, the experimentation phase is over. We need to sort of now really commit to some of these tech development projects, which sometimes can be quite heavy, just to make sure that you don't accumulate enough technical debt or your commercial gets way ahead of your capabilities to technically deliver. So... It varies case by case, but, mm-hmm. but the most common scenario for us is that we build a relatively small amount of tech to start with, get out, get selling, so you, so you actually can know that there is genuine customer demand, customer mm-hmm. demand there. Uh, and then because you've got a lot of manual processes, you're in a lot of contact with your customers the whole time, so that really helps you build up the kind of intimate understanding of, of, of what drives them. Uh, and then as the business scales, we look, what, 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 you know, what, is the big, what is the biggest bottleneck here? Mm-hmm. Uh, and then we seek to automate that. So with Patch, for example, so they're processing a couple of hundred inquiries a week now. And the biggest bottleneck was that these bespoke on solutions, uh, they were uh, putting them together by hand using Google Photos and emailing a link to their customers. I mean, A, that's sort of slightly inefficient from a conversion point of view, but B, more importantly, it was time consuming. And that was the most time consuming piece. And so uh, now automated that so that it's much, much quicker for them to put together these solutions. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and also from a customer experience perspective, they're they're getting it on on the patch website rather than in an email. Uh, but that's freed up a lot of time in patch. So maybe uh, we're jumping around a little bit in terms of you know the ideas that you picked up now that you're working with Forward, as well as those from like earlier in your career. But this you brings up you bring up an interesting point regarding two or three different ideas and very early stage companies that you probably work with. You know you have two or three different customer segments or two or three different ideas that you're probably coding for or different UXs. How do you help them with your experience on making those kinds of decisions? I think that very early in the life of startups, it's it's common, you know, not every company, but but, but very common to have an exploration phase where you just get a lot of irons in the fire, and and then you then you see what sticks, you know. So if you're building software, then you know maybe you've got a bunch of different customer segments, uh, but then. Hopefully, if you've got a good company, then one of those customer segments will will start to look more attractive than the others. Uh, and you know, when you're going through this kind of search uh, and exploration phase, then you know, my advice is always to begin, always looking at you because know, the goal here is is not to just explore. The goal is to find a first segment that can really kind of give you the next 10x in growth. And so you're always looking for those patterns. Always, you know, which of these segments is bigger? Which of these is is proving easier to sell to, mm. uh, uh, easier to grow? Uh, and then as soon as you start seeing signs of that. Then you, know, mm. you double down on that one. You know, don't ditch the. You know, you don't ditch all the others immediately, but you just dial up a little bit, yeah. dial up a little bit more, dial up a little bit more. That that's that's sort of approach it iteratively, I guess. 
if we go back to where we left off, to your first job in, in investment, walk us through what that was like and sort of your first year or, you know, the first deals that yeah. you did and stories there. So, yeah, so it was late 99. I joined Reuters Venture Capital uh, and they, they were throwing a party just after I accepted the offer. They were throwing, this is a crazy bubble story. So they were throwing a party for their 10th IPO. There's only 35 companies in the portfolio and the public portfolio was worth a billion dollars already. It was, it was crazy times and it was a lot of fun for four months. And that's, <laughs> and then the wheels fell off, didn't they, in March yeah. 2000. Uh, and by the mid noughties, I was describing my career in venture as, as, as four months of fun and five and a half years of pain as we'd been putting the pieces back together. I mean, you remember some mm, of this stuff yeah. as well, don't you? You know, the, the first bit was just we were just working hard to to get deals done and and and, and ride the bubble up, uh, and then you know, and then that took us through to March two thousand. With hindsight, you know, so we didn't respond quite as quickly as we might to that. But then, pretty quickly after that, it switched to okay, so we've got a portfolio uh, of businesses now. You know, how do we get the most out of this? And what's become a much 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 tougher funding environment. So there was a lot of during those years, a lot of having to downsize companies, having to do down rounds, having to, you know, the, the only way it, it can make sense to support some of these companies with extra cash was if, if that extra cash then took a large percentage of the equity, which meant then crushing out some other investors, a lot of unpleasant stuff that you really don't want to ever have to get into, but was forced on us really by the combination of the excesses of the bubble and the depth of the recession that followed. We're today arguably not in that kind of situation, although we did go through it a little bit post 2008. There are some of those things that perhaps are knee-jerk reactions that investors take to unstable or uncertain economic times. Being that there is a lot of uncertainty right now post-Brexit and all these other things, what, are you, what do you reckon are the, the, the patterns that we might see that might happen and that startups should start preparing to be ready for them? So I think we're in a very unusual situation at the moment because because it's highly uncertain. There's, there's two plausible scenarios which have quite different consequences for, for all of us in the startup ecosystem. So the scenario which I think is, is most likely is that, is that we will exit, uh, we'll negotiate an, an exit from Europe, which, which doesn't change that much. So critically for startups, we'll still be able to hire people from Europe to work in our companies here in, in the UK and London, and our companies will still have access to uh, European markets. So my guess there is that the UK government will make the trade and accept free movement of labour in, in return for access to European markets, mm. and a, you know, so this passport for the city to continue to do business in Europe. So in that scenario, nothing that much changes. Mm -hmm. We've got uncertainty in, in the run-up to it, which will just, I think, result in things happening more slowly, particularly for a couple of months. But, you know, I think if we start to get on, look, if it starts to look like we're on that track, then hopefully things return to normal-ish reasonably quickly. And that, I think, is the most likely outcome. You know, there is a second outcome where we do some hard exit that prompts some kind of recession. Uh, but I, th I think that's less likely. It's also very hard to envisage what that looks like. So, so you know, my advice right now to startups is, you know, just to get your head down and, and focus on building your business. You know, at the margin, be a little bit more prudent with uh, with your burn rate, with, you know, raise more, spend less, and just try and give yourself a bit more runway uh, because the funding environment might get tough. But I don't think it's it's time to be drastically changing plans. Now, let's go back to 2000, early 2000, post-pop of, of the bubble. What was the investment landscape for you guys back then, circa 2001, when things started slowly recovering? What, what did it look like? What kind of opportunities were you guys going after? 
So, so I was at Rogers Venture Capital through through 2003. So the core of what we were doing was software really that fitted with Reuters business either mm-hmm. as a supplier to Reuters or as a potential customer to Reuters or somehow helping the Reuters ecosystem. Mm-hmm. So we looked at a lot of uh, natural language processing software, um, probably like 13 years too early. Uh, digital rights management was a big deal for Reuters. We, we had investments in, in speech recognition technology. We had, I think, investments in, uh, we did have an investment in SpeechWorks. So is that, yeah, it's a lot of lot of software, really enterprise Actually, software. But it's, it's yeah. funny because, to some extent, we are revisiting those themes today, and and I guess sometimes, yeah, themes can come back, and maybe in the right context and the right time. Yeah, well, every idea has its time, and, and and being too early as a venture investor is is you know as much of a death knell as, as being too late, uh, and particularly in the bubble, you know, we got to a lot of these themes too early. But I think you know one of the biggest skills you need and biggest disciplines you need as a venture investor is is being able to call that market timing uh, and, and there's actually kind of two aspects to that as well there's you can call the timing i'm tempted to draw a graph in the air which mm. isn't going to help anyone very much but there's there's a gartner hype curve that uh, that i'll attempt to describe verbally so there's you know a hype emerges around a sector and if you if you played that uh, hype cycle right then you can invest at the bottom of it and and sell out at the top uh, and make a lot of money before before there's much deployment of a, of a technology so oculus is two billion exit to facebook is a great example of that recently and then and then the second time you can make money is is when everything comes down the hype curve and then and people get fed up with it and then they start implementing it and it really starts getting widespread use through society and it's that kind of you can ride that second curve and that kind of second curve is 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 where we play at forward partners and yeah. where I've always had a kind of more natural affinity as an investor. If we look back at some of these things that were maybe in that first part of the hype curve and now reading revisited 13 years later, I'm going to put you on the spot here a little bit and I'm going to ask you, what do you think right now is at the peak or close to the peak of the hype curve, but frankly probably needs a little bit more, a couple, three, four, five more years of gestation before it really is ready? Well, so I mentioned one, virtual reality yeah. and augmented reality. Although, you know, having seen Pokemon Go take the, take over the world, maybe slightly revised on augmented reality. But so you know, so we focus on these, these online transactional businesses. And, and so we've been thinking, you know, are there any interesting plays? We were looking at this actually a uh, year before last. Are there any interesting plays in using virtual reality to, you know, build a better marketplace, build a better uh, e-commerce business? You know, so we, we, we got an Oculus development kit, we played around with the stuff and, and it became very clear pretty quickly that, you know, the technology is a ways off um, in terms of how easy it is to use, just like even when you've got the headset on and, and you kind of have a navigation and you're yeah. used to all of that. And plus the, the kit itself is expensive and, and you need an expensive PC to hook it up to. All of these things, you know, need to get a lot simpler and come down the price curve before, before we're going to see mass deployment across you know sort of e-commerce and marketplace stuff that, that is at the core of our portfolio i think games will come a little bit earlier but it'd be interesting i mean so there was actually probably the peak of the hype was at the beginning of this year for that wasn't it and so yeah. that you know the oculus first oculus kits came out and and uh, but with whom you know less the first oculus consumer kits came out and they were hearing less and less talk about that right now yeah and on the theme of keeping you on the spot um ai do you think we're there or do you think it's still too early and, and really what we're using is these terms in such a such a generous way that in fact we probably need a, a little bit more time or do you think that frankly there's some amazing companies out there you saw the whole deep mind use uh, by Google to reduce their energy consumption are we there or is it too early 
I think there's some really interesting stuff going on today with, with AI, definitely. But I think that AI is, rather than understand it as, as sort of something which arrives and then, and then will be here, has been something which is steadily progressing for years. And, you know, and there's a bit of a cliche if you talk to AI people, it's like as soon as, you know, you've got a bit of artificial intelligence technology and, the, and then as soon as people start using it, they stop calling it AI uh, and then on to the next thing. And so uh, now I'm going to say, so, so neural networks as, yeah. as uh, a natural language processing, you know, to, to, to be able to draw insight from, from a body of text and compare it to another body of text, you know, that's the stuff we were backing in Reuters back whatever, around about 2000, 2001. And that is a bit of machine learning in there. And, and that was AI in its day. And, and also a lot of these companies, a lot of the kind of companies, particularly in the natural language processing area, coupled these sort of Bayesian net technologies, as they were called at the time, with with complex rules engines. Uh, and then that was AI. And, you know, and nowadays we look at a complex rules engine and we, we sniff at that, don't we? And we, we, don't, we don't really regard that as, as, as AI at all anymore. Uh, and, and learning has to be a whole lot deeper. Uh, and so, so I think there's been a kind of steady progression. But I think what's interesting now is that is that the, the, the more recent developments in, in, in machine learning uh, have uh, opened up a whole bunch of new use cases at a price point that is, is enabling a whole bunch of new technologies. It's really quite exciting. Yeah, it is quite exciting. So if we go back to where we left off, you were at Reuters, and, that, uh, and then was that when you transitioned over to DFJ? Or? So I went from Reuters to, uh, to what ultimately became uh, what ultimately became Draper Esprit. So, so when I joined, it was Casanova Private Equity. We were a, a third-party uh, institutional venture capital fund, but managed by a team of employees at the investment bank Casanova. So that was, I joined there at the beginning of 2004, and we spanned that out from Casanova in 2006 to become, this is quite a long story, so I'll do it quick, to become Esprit Capital Partners. Then we teamed up with DFJ to become uh, DFJ Esprit, I think that was 2007, and then uh, and then I left there to found Ford Partners in 2013, and then just now in 2016, uh, DFJ Esprit changed its name to Draper Esprit, so, so I kind of... I, tend to refer to that whole period now as Draper Esprit. Okay, so Draper Esprit and then Forward Partners. And, you know, during that time period, which is, you know, it's quite it's quite big and you've obviously done a lot of deals. What are the things that have sort of stood out that were like key lessons learned? So a couple of things I'd point to. One, so, you know, I've been in venture capital since I was 25. Uh, and uh, when you build your career as a VC, like I have, then, you know, and it's a similar story for you, I guess, isn't yeah. it? Um, then uh, maybe you can tell me afterwards if this happened to you. But <laughs> what happens is you, know, you you arrive and it's all excited and you're meeting loads of companies, you've got partners in the fund who are saying, look at this and uh, oh, please close this deal for me. And so you're doing a lot of meeting companies and a lot of deal execution. And, and then after a year or two, had some success doing that. Uh, and you want to make the next step. And so you say, oh, okay, I, want to be, I want to be on some boards now, please. Mm. Uh, so then... What happened to me, and I think this is pretty common, is I, I, you know, they put me on some boards, but not not necessarily the best boards in the uh, in the portfolio. And so then I found myself in a period of of having to make these companies work. Uh, a lot of spending time coaching CEOs, was, um, some having to bring in new CEOs, and seeing the kind of the disruption that that can cause, or well, it does cause every time. Sometimes it's absolutely necessary, and you know, and a couple of examples where we did that and went on to sell companies for a lot of money afterwards. But the big lesson that I took away from from that is don't get into that mess in the first place. You know, really focus on finding entrepreneurs that you believe can, you know, get to the 
company to the point where it's really demonstrably valuable you know and, and at that point it then becomes much easier to organize a, a new ceo coming in founder stepping aside but mm. if you're having to do any of that stuff when the company is still either small you know sub 100 people maybe even 200 people and or not really proven yet from a business model perspective then it's really challenging mm. uh, so what happens is that yeah, you start to, as an investor, you start to suspect that performance could be better if you had someone else running the, the company, but you know you're not sure, so you need to run, let that run for a little bit, and then and then most often you start talking with other investors, and, and that takes a while to convince them, uh, and then you've got to, assuming that you can get the whole company aligned around making a change, then you've got to hire a new CEO. You know you're looking at a good six to twelve months for that, and then there's a fifty fifty chance that the new person doesn't work out anyway, and so all of that is you just really want to stay away from it if you can yeah so that was kind of the first lesson and then the second lesson was uh, you know when i was on and this is a bit embarrassing looking back but when i was on my first boards uh, i would sit there and you know having met a lot of venture-backed startups and, and had all this strategy experience and so on and i would look and and, and uh, i could see lots of ways in which these companies could be better and so i would you know and really genuinely trying to be helpful but Try and help in all these different areas at once. Uh, what I learned, and it took me probably two, three, four years to, to really kind of internalize this message is, you know, is not to do that, right? To, you know, my mantra now is like focus on one thing at a time, you know, like to pick the most important thing to focus on with a company that, that needs change and, and just focus on that. Uh, and if you try and work on too many areas at once, you dilute your message. It's harder to maintain relationships um, and it's less effective. In that spirit, it would be probably a good point to talk a little bit about taking those lessons and applying them to starting forward partners. When you hear about why founders start anything, you know, there's usually like a series of problems and, and, and they want to build a solution for those problems. Would you say that these two problems, you know, the, the sort of the management, the CEO, and also in terms of focalized assistance from a very capable board or capable advisors, were the foundation for what Forward Partners is today? Or, or maybe more comprehensively, what are the elements that defined the idea of Forward Partners and what are the things that you're trying to solve with the creation of Forward Partners? So the, the really big driver for Forward Partners has been the increasing capital efficiency of startups. As you well know, post uh, open source software, cloud computing, all these SaaS tools on, on, on the kind of development side and post Facebook and Google on the uh, go-to-market side, you just get companies to market for a fraction. Like most of our companies that we back at idea stage get to market for less than 20 grand now. And so it was that change that, that I could see. It was changing the way startups were being built and has big implications for how startups should be financed. And so that was really the driving force for Ford Partners. And as we've looked at it more and more, it's, it's interesting what's happened. So so now that companies can get to get to market, get a product built and get customers using it for, for such small amounts of cash, then most investors have responded by saying, okay, I, you know, I, I, I don't want to invest until I can see that product, until I can maybe see some customers using it or even paying for it. So it's all kind of, you know, I want to invest post-product, post some sort of customer traction. Whereas if you go back 10 years, you know, it was, you need to have been doing this at Doughty Hanson occasionally and, you know, and we were others were, you know, not uncommon to put even a couple of million pounds into a, a seed company that was, basically just a founder or a founding team and an idea. And you need to think, okay, if they can build a prototype and get a little bit of customer traction on this two million pounds, then they'll get their series A away. And so 
you know, this kind of response by the venture industry in general of effectively taking a bit less risk with their investments has opened up a, a, an opportunity at the very earlier stage to to invest, you know, pre-product, pre-traction, pre-team even. And that's that's where we play as forward partners. And kind of when we thought about it in some more detail, the thing which stops, uh, which makes it hard for, for traditional venture funds to invest in, in, in startups today pre pre-product, pre-traction and so on, is that they typically have only got one or two people in them. And so you look at the company and say, oh, okay, so I could give you some money, but who's going who's gonna to do everything, right? Who's going to build the website or the app? Who's going to find the customers? Who's going to do the design? Uh, and, and because those people aren't there, then it's hard, it's hard, you just can't get enough confidence that they're going to progress fast and be able to raise another round at a bigger, you know, increased share price before they run out of cash. So whereas from a four partners perspective, so I'm now jumping the gun and getting to four partners, but we uh, we have a team of people who is there to help our founders do those things. And so, you know, we can have confidence that they're going to be able to build their sites, find customers, have great design, and generally progress very fast because um, because the founder very much in control, but he's using our team to to execute very fast. Yeah. Can I, maybe this is a bit of a controversial question, but... You know, if I take what you've what you've laid out as the thesis why a founder might want to work with you, partially because there's these really experienced team within Forward that can help me get that traction through their time, is there there a counter argument to be made that perhaps it might create a false sense of team work and, and capability, where as soon as I need to go out and hire those roles that Forward has provided me. I have all of a sudden find myself in a vacuum trying to find those roles and having them meld with the company culture that I had created with the, the team within Forward Partners. So we're super careful that that doesn't happen. So our team kind of works extensively with um, with the founders, really only for the first six months. So the, so the, so the, the companies we back at Idea Stage come work with us in our offices for, for a whole year and, and they do work with our team for that whole year. But the vast bulk of that time, uh, the time they have from, from our team is in the first six months. And then we help them hire their own team. And it's absolutely critical to have, to be entirely using your own team when you go on to, to raise the next round uh, because you know, no one's going to give a, a Ford Partners company money to continue to grow if, uh, if you know, if they're still dependent on our team because our team's off to focus mm. on the next investment. So you know, we manage that cycle very mm. carefully and we're very upfront about that with the founders at the point when we invest. Also, the founders, you know, they, 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 they view us as a really helpful way of getting started quickly. Uh, and it's much easier to hire into your company once it's up and running and you've, you know, you've kind of this decided you know tech stack and, and you know and you design ethos mm. um but the founders really want their own team anyway right that's mm. that's that's what they want more than anything and then the final piece is that we are we work hard to help founders build a, a really solid understanding of what good looks like in each of the different areas of uh, of their business so in particular i think it's key these days that founders have a good sense of product so so Damesh Retata my product partner you know that's what he helps him with he's, he's written a, a post on we published this thing called the path forward and, and Damesh has written a post on, on the path forward which is about how to build your product muscle uh, as a founder and so we really kind of help them build these capabilities yes yeah, so you provide thought leadership on, on that internally now I know you guys also do uh, later stage investment in, in conjunction with the pre-seed investment yeah. can you walk through a little bit kind of what you look for for founders that are listening that would want to approach you for that and what, what would they be getting as well as part of that that process i know we we have a co-investment in in spoke for those of you that are listening that want some amazing trousers uh, go to <laughs> spokelondon.com and you'll you'll find them but um, maybe walk us through kind of how you make decisions there and what, what do the companies get so the highest level we're looking for companies that, uh, that can reach huge scale and 
uh, and when our shares can can return our fund, from, you know, when we sell our shares, the amount we get back will return our fund or a multiple of it. Uh, and so we're looking for ambitious entrepreneurs in big markets with an idea that um, will enable them to build a, a business that will ultimately throw off a lot of profits at scale. And that kind of focus on fundamentals is is very important in the markets that we focus on. And so that's at the highest level. When we kind of a bit more detail, most of our seed investments are a post product. So um, we can see that, you know, the customer demand is validated and, and they're a year away from Series A. So typically they've got one thing missing from the Series A story. Maybe they, they're growing fast enough, but they just don't have enough scale yet. Or maybe the margins, you know, need to improve over the next 12 months. We believe that will happen. Quite common, actually, is that customer acquisition costs. Just this was a bit of the case we spoke when we first invested. Yeah. Customer acquisition costs uh, were still high. You know, they were on a downward trend. And so, you know, so our bet as uh, an investor in that business was that they would come down far enough in order for them to be able to raise their, their Series A uh, a year later, which, which indeed is what happened. One of the things that we like to end on is any recommendations for book that you think would be beneficial for the community. The book that I recommend the most to founders is, is a book called Talking With Humans by Gift Constable. And it's about how to do good customer development. So I think there's an emerging science now, and I use that word science deliberately about understanding customer needs and their emotional their emotional hot, hot buttons. And there's some relatively simple techniques about asking open questions and focusing on people's history rather than asking, getting them to predict what they might do in the future that can elicit a really deep understanding of customers, which help which helps founders to uh, build the right product first time. And so principles which uh, we have imbibed really at Ford Partners, and, uh, you know, and I think one of the areas that we're great at is, is spotting which products are going to uh, emotionally resonate emotionally. Uh, and when we're working at idea stage, helping founders to get that right in their first products. Anyway, and so, so Gift Constables, Talking With Humans is, uh, is the best book to read for that. And it's quite short as well. Well, thanks for the recommendation and thanks for joining us, Nick. My pleasure. Bye, guys.